Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your host, host Lynn Wilson and John Cho. How are you? (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about Ezekiel. I just (laughs) jumped right in. So this week we're doing Ezekiel. And again, starting with our key questions here. How does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? I see the Savior in lots of his visions. We mm-hmm. see the throne. We see Lord on his throne. We have another throne, theophany, mm-hmm. uh, the study of, of God on his throne. And I see here, one reason why the Book of Mormon fits in so nicely is because Lehi and Nephi see similar or see also amazing visions, but they're from the same time period. Mm. So there's a lot of things that are similar. So like Jeremiah, Ezekiel's a contemporary. Yep, Lehi. but they live in yeah. different locations. Um, so Ezekiel does not start quite as early as Jeremiah did. I don't know if you remember, but Jeremiah started in Jerusalem right. with King Josiah. And Ezekiel is called to be a prophet after he has been taken to Babylon. Okay. And that's chapter one. We'll We'll go into some of those details, but... Just historically, Ezekiel fits into the very last couple chapters in Kings, Second Kings, and Ezekiel is with this group of exiles. He was one of the first taken captive. So let's just say 600 BC, plus or minus a couple of years, most people say 597 is the first deportation. And that's when they take the wealthy, the educated, and some of them on their own will, That's when Daniel goes as a young child, and it sounds like that's when Ezekiel is deported. But while Daniel is in the palace, Ezekiel is in the refugee camp. And it sounds like he's married, and he and his wife have relative autonomy. They live in some sort of a a, a structure called a home, Mm -hmm. a house of some sorts. Don't don't picture anything much more than a a one-room building, but they have a place for themselves. And the Lord has him testify of what's going on in Jerusalem, even though he's not there, as well as what's happening in his own area. And then, just like with Jeremiah, he also prophesies against the seven nations. In fact, the first 24 chapters here are about God's judgment under against Israel. You know, all these warning of the people that they're going to be destroyed. It's this pre-destruction. And then we get these Judgment Against the Seven Nations, and chapter 33 is a beautiful um, separate chapter talking about the watchmen and repentance, and very similar to Jeremiah's message and Lehi's message. And then comes chapters 34 to 48 are the post-destruction. It's looking to the future. It's comforting mode, hope for Israel, hope for the nations. And I see this part is all very messianic. Looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, both the first coming and the second coming are all part of that that great time. Um, what else do we need to touch on for historical value? I guess some of the themes maybe in the book? Yeah. Let's... He, he's very symbolic. I think we're almost back like with Isaiah. You have to look at the parables and he... The Lord has him teach with words, and the Lord has him teach in parables. And some of those parables are him acting things out. I almost see him as a as a street um, theater kind of a <laughs> act person, you know, acting things out on the street sometimes to get people to listen. The Lord's being so creative in the way he's trying to share the message. But just like Jeremiah, he doesn't have too much of an audience. Well, 
I, I how how is he received? You know, we, we like so we covered Jeremiah. He got thrown in jail. You know, yeah, no, he is not thrown in jail. But the Lord still doesn't say the people are going to be translated with the city of Egypt. You know, <laughs> I, I think we're in a different. So he's he's more of an empty empty theater. Yeah, although I, we know that they are repenting to the degree that the Lord allows them to go back. Mm. So I think they did to some some point. I see one of the themes as it's repeated 66 times, at least, mm-hmm. the Lord identifies himself, I am the Lord. I, I remember in the New Testament counting up one time the I am, you know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light, I am the good shepherd, I, you know, and the Lord here is identifying himself over and over. But talking about titles also reminds me that he uses this title for Ezekiel that we usually apply to the Savior in the New Testament. Did you catch? There's 102 references to son of man, mm. which means son of Adam or humanity or, or mortality. So he's saying, he's not saying son of dirt, but, you know, Adam right. does mean red soil or soil man. So that <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's referring to him as a human. And I'm... How do we differentiate between Son of Man in the Old Testament and Son of Man in the New Testament? Because the rest of Christianity refers to them the same. Jesus is the Son of Man until the resurrection, and then God makes him into a God. At least some Christians interpret it that way. But because of the book of Moses, we don't refer to the Son of Man for Jesus Christ in the same way we do for Ezekiel. I'll, I'll just I'll just go back and read that. Let me open yeah, this up. Let's... Moses chapter 6, verse 57. Son of man. Here it is. Man of holiness is his name. He's referring to the name of the Father. Man of holiness is his name, and the name of his only begotten is the Son of man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge who shall come in the meridian of time. So when Christ is called Son of man... I believe we are using this exalted title of our Father, the mm. man of holiness. And then when the Lord is referring to Ezekiel as a son of man, he could be a type of Christ, but he's it's lowercase m. It's humanity. Yeah, I think it's a lowercase m, which for the Savior, son of man, for me, this is, it's... um. It's about his condescension, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. also not just that; it's about the the brotherly love of mm-hmm. of our of Christ. Like you know, he, and he, he he is he descended below all things. He came as a man so that he could experience exactly. humanity, even though he is half divine. Yeah. So so I like this sort of man. It's this idea of Ezekiel as as a as a mortal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm, and everything mm-hmm. that goes with it. And so we can all step into his shoes and try to do the same. But because of this symbolism and imagery, I find it easier to read the book of Ezekiel in other translations. Mm. And I usually do anyway, just to make sure that I'm catching the, the meaning. But um, it's interesting, as chapter one begins, Ezekiel announced that he's 30 years old. And that's sort of hard to see in the King James, but he says it's my 30th birthday, you know, it's my 30th year. And for a priest, that means this is the year he can finally start serving in the temple. Right. But he can't. He's living in Babylon. Mm. You know, he was part of that exile. He's been there now for five years, it says. It's on his fifth anniversary of being there. He was taken when he was 25. And he can't serve in the temple. And so he's 
down about it. And the Lord, instead of allowing him to go into the temple, the Lord gives him a vision of the Holy mm. of Holies. It's just a fabulous um, realization that this all ties into the law of Moses practice of allowing a priest to serve from age 30 to age 50. And the Levites served from 25 on. But um, the vision begins. Actually, it's so hard to understand. Do you want to read it in the yeah. NIV instead? Yeah. Do you want me to start in verse one or verse four? Yeah. Why don't we? So verse one just talks about the fact that he has this storm and the storm picks him up and takes him into this vision. And I think it's sort of a prelude to the whole book, right. um, even though the book really does focus on God's judgment against Israel, God's judgment against the nations, and then looking to the future, post-destruction, what's going to happen. So I feel like those are the main focuses of the book. But um, we see this idea of um, the vision becomes a type of what we're going to see throughout the book. Okay. So verse four, are we four through nine? Mm-hmm. And this is the um, NIV version. I looked and saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In the appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, uh, excuse me, under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each went, each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. So we are blessed to have section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants when mm -hmm. Joseph is asking the Lord, you know, how come in the Bible these these angels have wings, you know, what's this wing business? And the Lord right. says, the wings represent the power to act. And the Lord explained a few other images as well in section 77 for um, the book of Revelation, but they tie in well here because in the book of Revelation, John is using the same symbolism. He's a Jewish man and he's using the same symbols that Ezekiel and Isaiah did hmm. in their throne theophany. But we see this unification as their power is joined. You know, their wings are touching, as you read in verse 9. And they're undaunted in their actions or purpose as they move forward. And their wings also are covering um, their faces. So they have this great power to see and to think. And, you know, it's extraordinary, far beyond the mortal comprehension. And so I think in order to demonstrate this greater power to act, they put the wings covering that portion. Hmm. In chapter 1, these four faces, just continuing on down now to verse verse 10, they have these, each each has a four faces. And interestingly, these four faces, the man, eagle, ox, and lion, are used to represent, in the New Testament, the four Gospels. Mm. And because Matthew begins with a genealogy, they have Matthew representing the man. And because Mark, um, anyway, they have each one for a different reason. Mark is the eagle, Luke is the ox, and John is the lion. And so often in early Christian art, any beautiful cathedral you go to visit will have uh, the representation of the four Gospels as these, because they interpret this vision as the Lord is going to send forth his gospel to the world through the words and through the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
So the New Testament interpretation um, utilizes those. But if we're going to use Section 77's interpretation, um, and these people or these um, beings, these exalted beings representing classes of animals, are adding to the majesty and power and greatness of the throne of God. And everything is aflamed with fire, and we just see beautiful representations of the, um, you know, when Ezekiel has two or three other visions, we can talk about the fire in those as well, but I'm just going to do it here so that we get it all in one. Joseph Smith said, God dwells in a place of flaming fire, and the, the fire is purification, and all of the stones he describes are colors that would be filled with light and beauty and fire and brightness and gold and colors. It's a magnificent, but we have so many parallels in these prophetic calls. I remember one time in my undergrad, I did a, a paper on the parallels between the calling of all the prophets in the in the Bible compared to the calling of our prophet. And as I read the different accounts of Joseph Smith's um, first vision, there are many that refer to fire. And he was so surprised that the leaves weren't all burned up because it looked like fire. Right. And then do you remember Moses's pillar by night and then the, the, same thing, the yeah. dedication of the yeah. Kirtland temple, the neighbors come running because they think there's going to be the fire, the, the church, the temple is on fire, you know, but it's, it's just this identification. So the fire is used as a representation of God's um, cleansing power and greatness and light and beauty. And then comes Ezekiel two, where he gets a book the people are told that they're, here's verse three, they're rebellious, they're stiff-hearted, scorpions, actually, um, but he wants you to be their spokesman. It won't be easy. You're going to have a, you know, you're being sent to Siberia, whatever your mission call is. It's a, it's a terrible one. He's not sent to Siberia, he's sent to <laughs> Babylon. But I was just giving an example, I'm sorry. In chapter three, after he receives this prophetic call, this book or this scroll that he has to Read and do you remember Lehi also gets a book? I was just thinking that, yeah. This, I mean, they're contemporaries. I'm thinking of this moment where where Lehi's experience early in First Nephi was he just has this passion for the people, and uh, you know, is rejected by them, preaching from his heart, right? Which, if we go back to Jeremiah, it's like the, these are the Lord's words, right? And then he falls asleep and has this vision. I'm thinking, was this a similar vision, right? <laughs> Well, it's certainly um, the idea of the prophet receiving a book is yeah. even mentioned by John the Revelator, that John receives a book and he has to eat it. I think that imagery of eating your mission call, internalizing it, every yeah. cell of your body is going to get part of this message. He wants us to take it in to it's a part of you. it. It's a part yes, of you, yeah. To become part of us. And um, he gives this warning in Ezekiel chapter 3. He's calling him again to be a watchman. Do you remember the idea of yeah. the tower and the top of the hill? Right be, around Jerusalem, so Jerusalem's on Mount Moriah. Mm -hmm. Mount Scopus is just due east, and it's a little bit taller, um, at least nowadays. And Mount Scopus means the mount of the watchman, of the warning voice. And um, the Lord is not only calling Ezekiel to be a watchman, but I think um, when we are baptized, we are called to to take the Lord's name upon us and to do his work. It is our responsibility to also magnify our callings and raise a warning voice to the world. Yeah. Can we talk more about the watchman and what his role was just literally so the symbolism makes more sense? Well, I think um, 
it may have been different in Babylon, but in Jerusalem, their responsibilities were to stand um, around the, like around a walled city. You would have watchtowers. It was to be the highest point, and you were to stand there day and night. Different people would take shifts and keep an eye out. And if an enemy were to come and the city was besieged or the city was taken, it was your responsibility and your life would be forfeit. You know, you had to stay alert and attentive and keep an eye out to make sure that the safety of the city was maintained. So I love that part of the system, this idea that it's your responsibility to maintain the safety of the city, right? And to warn. Yeah. Why don't we read verse 19 on that? It, it's really pretty powerful because the whole thing is about our, we have, we have to maintain our stewardship here. The Lord's asking us to. So you, uh, are we looking at chapter, chapter three, three 19? 19? Okay. And this is in the NIV version, but if you'll, um, but if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. So if you're a watchman and you're going to magnify your calling, you're going to be okay. But he says that whole chapter, actually, I should have started you earlier. Ezekiel chapter three, you know, if you don't magnify your calling, God is going to hold you responsible. I, I see echoes of this in the Book of Mormon as well. You know, uh, with Jacob, you know, shaking his garments, so to speak, right? Uh, King Benjamin and so on. Well, I appreciate They had this heavy responsibility, God's yeah. Prophets. All, yeah. all of us. It shouldn't be just be disciples. It's, it's all I like of us who that. take upon us his name. I like that. If we extend this idea, especially during this time period, that if you have a testimony of Christ, you do have a responsibility to be a watchman. Um, and it's very important to warn people. It's not just love, which is very, 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 very important. All of our watching has to be with love. Yeah. You know, we can't have judgmental things here. But the warning voice has to be accompanied with it. We have to bear testimony of truth in a loving way. And that's that's not easy. Yeah. Chapter 5 through 7 begins some of these street theater things where Ezekiel is told, I want you to act this out. They're not getting the written, they're not getting your words. Um, they're not listening to those. So let's just do some drama. Let, let's just, can you please create a little miniature Jerusalem here in the street? <laughs> I want you to just, I can see these little clay figures, you know, these animals and chariots you and mean things. He, did, he didn't have a felt board with cutouts? Like no, I, I think it's with clay. I think it's on the ground. But he shows the Babylonian siege. And then the poor guy for a whole year, uh, he has him lay on his side. Um, chapter 5, verse 12, um, the one third of the people are going to die with famine. So he wants him to eat very, very meager meals. They're cooked over dung, you know, just mm -hmm. the showing the depravity and the slimness of what's left in the land. Nothing's available. And, oh, it. I, I skipped chapter five, verse one. That's when he tells him to cut his hair. He chops it off in thirds to represent the three deportations to Babylon. Mm. Um, and, you know, chopping off their beard and their hair wasn't done very often in the ancient world. So that's um, that's pretty powerful. And then he, when he has him lay on his side, it's supposed to be symbolic of, do you remember in Leviticus chapter 16, our, the Law of Moses includes the Day of Atonement, where right. the scapegoat comes. And it's representing, of course, the promised Messiah at, who will become the scapegoat. And he wants him to lay on his side, just like the scapegoat was, for a full year tied up on the ground. Mm. I, I just think this, no wonder he said it's going to be a hard mission. But he then ends um, with this, Israel's sins and hard heart are the problem. 
Mm. And so many times I have heard the phrase, oh, if, if, if we can just call into God, he'll answer us. But these people were too wicked. They could not hear the Lord. You know, the Lord may have been giving them instruction, but there was so much sin blocking out their ears that they were lacking the ability to hear the direction of the Lord. And unfortunately... I think this makes sense in context of Laman and Lemuel, right? You know, they, where their their hearts were hardened, they could no longer feel their words, right, of the Lord, even though the Lord was speaking to was them. was right there. Yeah. But it's, it, it, but it's important to remember they hardened their hearts. Right. They, that's they key, made those choices. Key. And that's the consequences of sin, the spiritual death. Is you, you, the, I think the message is there. The, the signal is still there. But you know, when, they, when they pray, they don't know how to listen, even when they're humbled in, that, in those times. But good, after this drama years on the street, the Lord gives him another great vision that he records in mm. chapters 8 through 11. And this second vision is the temple, um, God's presence leaves the Jerusalem temple, mm. because the Jerusalem temple is now filled with idolatry. Both men and women are there. Um, so God's throne moves um, to Babylon. And, you know, when we were talking about the throne, uh, the vision, I forgot to talk about the wheels and the eyes. But here we have another vision. <laughs> and um, I feel like Joseph is told that the eyes represent the omniscience of God, mm -hmm. that he can see past, present, and future. And the wheels in their era would have either been things like a chariot wheel, so the ability to move, or the ability to roll, or perhaps a sphere, as in a planet. Um, it's interesting to just think symbolically. What would these wheels have mean? Something that has the power to move, something that has the power to have um, great insight. And again, we see this great glory by fire that representing God is dwelling in the internal fire. Anyway, chapter 11 then goes through this transition where the idolaters, the Israelites who are the Jews who are um, any Israelite who has been driven from God has abandoned Israel. But when they are humble, they're promised that they will return. So that hope comes and we'll see the fulfillment of that in chapter 34, but um, it's a, it's, I'm looking this at chapter 11, gap. verse 13. Is everyone going to be wiped out? Do you see that? Yeah. And then in verse 17, I will gather you. I will gather you to this land. You know, if you change your heart, um, God will not forsake you. There's going to be a restoration. And I'm, fascinated with the idea of repentance being changing your heart. And my sons who served missions with Mandarin have taught that the figures that make up the word repent in Chinese mean change your heart every day. Mm. And that's exactly like that. what he's asking this, um, Israelites to do there in chapter 11. But then we get to this... Um, God's Judgment Against Israel, chapters 12 through 24. And, it, you know, we know that Ezekiel was taken on that first group. So we know that Ezekiel was deported with the first group. So I assume he was well-educated. And we determine that because of this beautiful poetic skill. And we see that 
all throughout the book of Ezekiel, but right here in in chapter 12, this Judah's rebellion and idolatry is is beautiful. And he says um, in chapter 14, they have idols in their heart. John, how do we have idols in our heart? What do you I, I thought about wish this. for? Yeah, isn't well, that an interesting? Because phrase? we don't we don't have bronze statues. No, of, we have materialism. Of, of, we have, <laughs> but we don't we don't and not in the same way. We don't have these you know little idols that they have in the same way, uh, literally, right? So it, for me, it is it's anything that we think will make us happy that actually won't. Things that that uh, you know wickedness or what's happiness. Too much time and pleasure seeking, and so on. Yeah, and what do you it's, think about when you don't have anything out of place to think even, about? Right? I, I feel like yeah. sometimes sports can become idols. Absolutely. Sometimes our work can become an idol. Sometimes money can become an <laughs> idol. But we have to really cautiously watch our thoughts. Are we worshiping our Savior? Are we thinking enough? What is our heart? What are our hearts set on? They have idols in their hearts. Yeah, it's. I, I love that symbol. Idols in our hearts. I mm-hmm. think is. Is a great way to say it compared to say worshiping idols or something like that. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a clear. I, I yeah. like that. Like it's it. called repentance is now so complete that in chapter 14, verse 20, he said, you're going to be destroyed no matter what. Even yeah. if Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, you're going to be destroyed. Wow. And this is another mention of the person Job as a real human. So I always am glad to find any of those. That's Ezekiel fourteen twenty. And then he uses more parables. Chapter 15, Israel's like a burnt, useless stick. Mm. And it's the opposite of that is in the New Testament where Christ says, I am the vine. And then he goes on in chapter 16, Jerusalem's like a harlot. And we go back to that imagery of adult, idolatry being adultery or the rebellious wife, I guess he calls her in chapter 16 as well, you know, sneaking out on him. Or chapter 19, he uses the parallel of a dangerous lion. Or in chapter 23, these two promiscuous sisters referring to the northern tribes, Israel and the southern tribe, Judah. Um, But these these parables are scattered in between. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul who sins is the one who will die. A son will not bear the iniquity of his father, and the father will not bear the iniquity of a son. The righteous of the right, the righteousness of a righteous man will fall upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will fall upon him. Sounds to me like the second article of faith, right there in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. And then we get to God's judgment against the nations from chapters 25 to 32. And he begins after that looking to the future. And um, I mentioned earlier Michelangelo's Jeremiah. Have have you seen Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel of Ezekiel? His head's up. His hand is up. He's looking to the sky. He's excited about the future. And that's what we find. Well, I guess first we have to touch a little bit. I on chapter 33, which is a very messianic, again, it's this watchtower calling for repentance. And we have such a serious stewardship, and we emphasized it before in chapter 3, but chapter 33 says it again. If the watchman doesn't blow the horn, then the pe- people's destruction are going to be on, on their own heads. Just as you said, Jacob chapter 1, verse 19, and 
Ezekiel 33, verse 6, and also verse 8. I could just keep going. It's the same message. I probably should move on. But the hope of the Messianic Israel is chapter 34. Uh, the king, the new David, um, the new heart, God's new spirit. He's going to soften the heart and people are going to hear. And again, he calls him a shepherd who will feed God's flock. That's 34, 13, and 14, and 15. Um, this new shepherd is going to allow them to lie down. God's going to help them. And then skipping ahead in chapter 34 up to verse 22 and 23, I will save them. I will be their shepherd. And it's in this context of this messianic king that we get the hope of the restoration in chapter 36. And Ezekiel's told to prophesy of this eventual restoration, but it, it begins with um, a vision of the valley of the dry bones, of the resurrection. Have you ever heard of uh, any of the gospel songs, them bones, them bones, them dry bones? <laughs> I, well, I grew up in the deep south, so I've, I've heard <laughs> lots of those. Love <laughs> Do you want to start with Ezekiel 37.1? Stay in the NIV since I've got it up here. Um, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he said unto me, verse 3, can these bones live? This is just so great. Verse 4 and 5, keep going. Then he said unto me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And every time it uses the word breath, I look this one up in Hebrew, it's all ruach. And ruach is the same word for spirit and for wind. And so I will cause the spirit to enter into them and they will live. It's not just enough to have skin and bones. You've right. got to have them. And do you remember in Genesis when in the creation account, the spirit of the Lord is brooding over the creation. And it's not until Adam receives the breath of life or the spirit of life that he becomes a living being. And the Savior's gift of the breath of life is what sustains us every day. With every breath, we are sustained by our God, our creator. Yeah, I love that. The dry bones is what caught my eye. It's like, okay, bone, but why, why dry? And just the idea that they've been dead a long time, yes. right? Yes. And that there's this resurrection that happens. There's no doubt. Yes. And the Spirit of the Lord comes into them. And again, in verse 13, ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves. Now, I hope that we know that before the graves are opened but there again is that theme, I am the Lord. These verses were actually regularly referenced in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found them in the Essene community. And you remember when the Roman Empire is taking over Jerusalem and trying to wipe out everything in the Palestinian peninsula, that the remaining um, Jews that were still alive ran to their southern border up in the Masada up to the um, fort fortifications in Masada. And when the excavations were done there 
in the synagogue, they found this verse written out, that the, the, dead, the valley of the dead bones was going to come back to life, this hope of the resurrection, this hope of the return. Verse 22 talks about this hope of the return for the nations and, and unifying the nations. Um, but I um, was in Israel one time, and a, a, a tour guide was— it was talking about that many Jews do not believe in a resurrection, but that he did, and he uses Ezekiel as his hope of a life after this one. I don't think they use the word resurrection, but a life afterward when our bodies will return through the work of their creator. And I was with Jack Welch, and he said, can you just read down a few more verses? And so they came to these wonderful verses then on the—why um, don't we start with verse 16 on— the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Son of man, this is NIV, uh, son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him, and take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. And most of us believe that that has multiple levels of interpretation, but the stick being a symbol of a tree or wood. In Hebrew, the word is tree or wood, so these two are going to join together, but also symbolic of a scroll that the scriptures were round, uh, bound and round, uh, that the scriptures were on scrolls that were wrapped around a stick. Um, but symbolically, these words are going to become one in our hand in this representation of the scriptures. In fact, um, our prophet Joseph says in his 1839 history, the Book of Mormon is the stick of Joseph in the hands of Ephraim. And then they're united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope that with not only reading the footnotes in our scriptures, but that our podcast has helped you have those two closer in your hands, that the Old Testament is best commentary is the Book of Mormon. Right. And if we can hold them together, we can re receive a testimony of both of them. And they can both uplift and bless us and understand us better. That chapter ends with the prophecy of our Savior. Do you want to read 24 as well? Yeah. My servant David will be king over them and they will have, excuse me, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Yeah. In King James, it's my statutes, but it's the idea of the ordinances. It's the decrees. And that ends our beautiful, well, I guess there's one more a message in chapter 37 where the Lord is going to set their sanctuary in their midst. And he talks about a new Jerusalem in chapters 26 and 27. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that is our goal now to do the same. And then we've got chapters 38 and 39 um, with the hope of the other nations, that the second coming is also going to bless them, and chapters 40 to 46. Well, I should mention one thing about 38 and 39. It's difficult to understand about Gog here, because in the book of Revelation, Gog is used as the battle after Gog and Magog is for the, the key, the code name for the battle after the the millennium. But here, Gog is symbolic of all these ancient kingdoms. It's, to me, it's an archetype of human rebellion. 
You know, it's like saying Egypt, if you want to talk about worldliness. Or, or Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. yeah. And here, Gog consumes the nations with earthquakes and fires and everything's burned. Um, but it, it is symbolic, I think, or um, it, it represents, anyway, this human rebellion. And then we have the hope for all the earth in chapters 40 to 46. And the Dead Sea is going to be healed. It's going to be transformed like the Garden of Eden. The vision, I, I love Ezekiel's vision in chapter 48 about the streams of water flowing from the temple, 47 and 48. And the prophet Joseph Smith taught um, shortly before his death, actually. It was April 6th. There was a general conference, 1843. Quote, Jerusalem must be rebuilt and Judah must return. This is really prophetic, isn't it? 1843, the Zionist movement hasn't even started in much yet, but after this point, it does. And 1843 also is two years after the dedicatory prayer by Orson Hyde on the Mount of Olives. So the prophet says, Jerusalem must be rebuilt and Judah must return and the temple water will come out from under the temple. The waters of the Dead Sea will be healed and it will some time to build the walls of the city. So Joseph was a visionary man as well. We are blessed to have a living prophet and may we work together that we can also say of our own cities and our homes and our churches and our temples, the Lord is there. Thank you. Thank you.